0: Section 32 of Four and Twenty Fairy Tales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeanette Edwards. Princess Gamion. By Mademoiselle de Lubert. Translated by James Planchet. Part three. He retired to bed, but not to sleep, for he did not close his eyes all night to have found his princess in the form of a crayfish ready to be made into soup for the king of the whiting appeared to him a still more frightful torment than the death to which he had believed her destined he was sighing and distressing himself cruelly when he was disturbed by a great noise in the garden he at first heard it confusedly but listening attentively he distinguished flutes and conch-shells he rose and went to the window when he saw the king of the whiting accompanied by the dozen sharks who composed his council, advancing towards the pavilion. He hastened to open the door, and the train having entered, the king first had his tub filled with sea water by the peers of the realm who bore it, and after a short repose, and making the council take their places, he addressed the young prince. "'Whoever you may be,' he said, "'you have resolved, apparently, to make me die of hunger, for you send me every day a broth which I cannot swallow.' But, young man, I must tell you, that if you are leagued with evil powers to poison me, you have taken a very foolish part. As nephew of the fairy Marmont, I am beyond all such attempts, and my life is safe. The prince, astonished at being suspected of so base an act, was about to reply with haughtiness, but by chance, as he raised his hand, he cast his eye upon his ring, and saw therein Luminous, who placed her finger on her mouth as a sign to him to be silent. He had not before thought of consulting his ring. He had been so engrossed by his grief. He accordingly held his tongue, but he betrayed his indignation in his countenance, which the sharks remarked, for they made signs of approbation, which appeared to say that they did not believe him capable of such a thing. said the king, as this Myrmidon appears so angry, we must make him work before us. Let them go to my kitchen. Let them bring the mortar for the crayfish. I shall give my counsel a treat. Immediately a pike's head went to execute the king's commands, and during this time the twelve sharks took a large net, which they threw into the reservoir from the window, and drew in three or four thousand crayfish. During the interval that the council was employed in fishing, and the pike's head in fetching the king's mortar, Zerfel reflected, and felt that the most critical moment of his life approached, and that his happiness or misery would depend upon his present conduct. He armed himself with resolution for whatever might come to pass, and placing all his hopes in the fairy Luminous, he implored her to be favorable to him. At the same moment he looked at his ring, and saw in it the beautiful fairy who made a sign to him to pound courageously this revived him and took from him some of the pain he felt at consenting to this cruelty at length the horrid mortar was produced Zirphil approached it boldly and prepared to obey the king the council put in the crayfish with great ceremony and the prince tried to pound them but the same thing happened to them as to the former ones in the kitchen the bottom of the mortar opened, and the flames devoured them. The king and the odious sharks amused themselves for a long time with this spectacle, and were never tired of filling the mortar. At length there was but one left of the four thousand. It was surprisingly large and fine. The king commanded that it might be shelled in order to see if he should like to eat some of them raw. They gave it to Zirphil to shell. He trembled all over at having to inflict this new torture, but still more when this poor fish joined her two claws, and with her eyes filled with tears, said, Alas, Zirphil, what have I done to you that you should wish to do me so much harm? The prince, moved by these words, and his heart pierced with grief, looked at her sadly, and at length took it on himself to beg the king to allow her to be pounded. The king, jealous of his authority and firm in his resolution, was enraged at this humble request and threatened to pound Zerphil himself if he did not shell it. The poor prince took it again from the hands of the shark to whom he had confided it, and with a little knife which they had given him he tremblingly touched the crayfish. He looked at his ring and saw Luminous laughing and talking to a veiled person whom she held by the hand. He could not understand this at all, and the king, who did not give him time to reflect, cried out to him so loudly to finish that the prince stuck the knife with such force under the shell of the crayfish that it cried piteously. He turned away his eyes from hers and could not help shedding tears. At length he resumed his task, but to his great astonishment he had not finished the shelling when he found in his hands the wicked marmot who jumped to the ground, uttering shrieks of laughter so loud and disagreeable in mockery of Zurfel, that it prevented him from fainting, or he would have fallen on the floor. The king cried in astonishment. "'Why, it is my aunt, and truly it is she,' said this annoying animal. "'But, my dear Whiting, I come to tell you a terrible piece of news.' Whiting grew pale at these words, and the council assumed an air of satisfaction, which increased the ill-humor of the king and his terrible aunt. "'The fact is, my darling,' continued Marmont, "'you must return to your watery dominions, for this rash boy whom you see here has chosen to display a constancy that nothing can shake.' and has triumphed over all the traps I set for him to prevent him from carrying off the princess I had destined for you. At these words, the king of the whiting fell into such a rage that he could not contain himself. He committed extravagances which proved he was possessed of the most violent passions. Marmot tried in vain to calm him. He broke his bowl into a thousand pieces, and being on dry ground, he fainted. Marmot, mad with rage, turned to Zurfil, who had remained a quiet spectator of this tragic scene, and said to him, Thou hast conquered, Zurfil, by the power of a fairy whom I must obey, but thou art not yet at the end of thy troubles. Thou canst not be happy till thou shalt have given into my own hand the case which enclosed the accursed camion." Even lumineuse agrees to this, and I have obtained her consent for you to suffer until that time. At these words she took the king of the whiting on her shoulders, and threw him into the reservoir, as well as the sharks, the palace, and all its inhabitants. Zerphil found himself alone at the foot of a great mountain, in a country which was as arid as the desert, without being able to perceive the vestige of a habitation or even of the great reservoir all had disappeared at the same moment. The prince was even more distressed than astonished at so extraordinary an event. He was accustomed to wonders. He was only alive to the grief which the persecution of the fairy Marmot occasioned him. "'I cannot doubt,' said he, "'that I have pounded my princess. Yes, I must have pounded her. Yet I am none the happier for it. Ah, barbarous Marmot! And you, Luminous!' You leave me without help, after having obeyed you at the expense of all which a heart as sensitive as mine could suffer. His grief and the little repose which he had taken since the previous night threw him into such a state of weakness that he would have sunk altogether if he had not had the courage to wish to live. If I could but find something to support me, said he, "'But in this horrible desert I shall seek in vain a single fruit which can refresh me.' He had not pronounced the word when his ring opened, and a little table covered with excellent viands came out of it. It became in a moment large enough to accommodate the person for whom it was intended. He found on it all that could tempt his eye and his appetite, for the repast was so beautifully arranged that in fact nothing was wanting, and the wine was delicious.' He returned thanks to Luminous, for who else could have assisted him so opportunely? He ate, drank, and felt strong again. When he had finished, the table lost its form and re-entered the ring. As it was late, he did not make much progress in ascending the mountain, but stretched himself under a wretched tree, which had hardly enough leaves to protect him from the night air. "'Alas!' said he as he laid himself down. "'Such is the nature of man!' he forgets the good that is past, and is only sensible of present evil. I would now willingly exchange my table for a couch a little less hard than this. A moment after, he felt that he was in a comfortable bed, but he could see nothing, for it appeared to him that the darkness was redoubled. He ascertained that this was caused by the ample curtains which surrounded his bed, and protected him from the cold and dew. And having again thanked the good and attentive luminous, he dropped off to sleep. On waking at daybreak, he found himself in an angel-bed of yellow taffety and silver, which was placed in the middle of a tent of satin of the same color, embroidered all over with ciphers in bright silver, which formed the name of Zurfil, and all the ciphers were supported by whales formed of rubies. Everything that could possibly be required was to be found also in this beautiful tent. If the prince had been in a more tranquil state of mind, He would have admired this elegant habitation generally. But he only looked at the whales, dressed himself, and went out of the tent, which folded itself up and re-entered the ring from which it had issued. He began to ascend the mountain, taking no longer any trouble in seeking food or lodging, for he was certain to have both as soon as he wished for them. His only anxiety was to find Luminous, for his ring was mute on that subject, and he found himself in a country so strange to him and so deserted that he was necessarily compelled to trust to chance. After having passed several days in ascending without discovering anything, he arrived at the brink of a well which was cut in the rock. He seated himself near it to rest and began to exclaim as usual, Luanus, can I not find you then? The last time he pronounced these words, he heard a voice which proceeded from the well say, Is it Zirphil who speaks to me?" His joy at hearing this voice was increased by recognizing her to whom it belonged. He rushed to the brink of the well and said, "'Yes, it is Zirphil. and are you not Citronette?' "'Yes,' replied Citronette, emerging from the well and embracing the prince. It is impossible to express the pleasure which this sight gave him. He overwhelmed the nymph with questions about herself and about the princess. At length, after the excitement of their first meeting had subsided, they spoke more rationally together. "'I am about to inform you,' said she, "'of all that you are ignorant of. For since the time you pounded us, we have enjoyed a happiness which was only alloyed by your absence, and I awaited your arrival here on the part of the fairy Luminous,' to tell you what remains for you to do in order to obtain possession of a princess who loves you as much as you love her, but as some time must elapse before you can arrive at this happiness. I will relate to you the rest of the marvellous history of your amiable bride. Zerfel kissed the hand of Citronet a thousand times, and followed her into the grotto, where he thought he should die of mingled pleasure and grief, when he recognized the spot in which he had for the first time seen his divine princess. At length, after partaking of a repast which came out of the ring, he begged the good Citronette to have the kindness to resume the narrative of the princess from where she had herself left off in the palace garden. "'As it is here,' said Citronette, "'that Lumineuse is to meet you, you shall, whilst waiting for her, learn all that you wish to know, for it is useless for you to run after her. She confides you to my care, and a lover is less impatient when one talks to him about her whom he loves.' The fairy Marmotte was not ignorant of your marriage. She had transformed our friend into an ivory doll, believing that you would be disgusted at her. Luminous conducted this affair herself, knowing that nothing could deprive you of the princess if you married her, or if you destroyed her enchantment by skinning her. You chose the former alternative, and you know what followed. By night she resumed her proper form, and lamented at having to pass all her days in your royal mother's pocket— for Marmotte had been permitted by Luminous to torment the princess until you had fulfilled your destiny, which was to skin her. So enraged was she at finding that you had married her, and that the king of the whiting, her nephew, could not become her husband. As the princess was no longer a whale, there was no fish to skin. But Marmotte, Fertile inexpedience determined to make you pound her, and had forbidden the princess to tell you anything about it under pain of your life, promising her afterwards the greatest felicity. How will he ever resolve to pound me? said she when expecting you. Ah, oh, my dear Citronette, if it were only my life that Marmot threatened, I would give it cheerfully to shield my husband from the torments they prepared for him. But they attack his life, that life which is so dear to me. "'Ah, oh, Marmotte! Barbarous Marmotte! Is it possible that you can take pleasure in making me so miserable when I have never given you any cause for it?' She knew the period prescribed for your separation from her, but she dared not tell you of it. The last time that you saw her, you know that you found her in tears. You asked her the cause, she pretended it was on account of your attentions to little Camion, and accused you of inconstancy.' You appeased her apparent jealousy, and the fatal hour at which Marmotte was to fetch her arrived. You were transported into the palace of the king, your father. The princess and I were changed into crayfish, and placed in a little cane basket, which the fairy put under her arm, and ascending a car drawn by two adders, we arrived at the palace of the king of the whiting. This palace was that of the royal father of the princess.' The city, changed into a lake, formed the reservoir which we have inhabited, and all the men-fish that you have seen were the wicked subjects of the good king. I must tell you, my lord, said Cintrinette, interrupting herself, that that unfortunate monarch and the queen his wife, being in despair at the moment when the princess sank to the bottom of the well, the fairies who had formerly come to their assistance appeared to console them for her loss." But the unhappy pair, knowing that it was to their kingdom that Camion would be exiled, chose to be there rather than at a distance from her, notwithstanding what they had to fear from the cruelty and ferocity of the king of the whiting, whom his aunt had caused to be crowned by these menfish. The fairies did not conceal from them the future fate of the princess, and the king, her father, begged to be the clerk of the kitchen and keeper of the king of the whiting's mortar. The fairy immediately gave him a tap of her wand, and he became the pike-headed man you saw in that situation. And you need no longer be surprised at his having wept bitterly whenever you brought the crayfish to pound, for as he knew that his daughter must undergo this torture, he always thought she was amongst the number, and the miserable monarch had not a moment's rest because his daughter had no means of making herself known to him. The queen had requested to be changed into a crayfish in order to be with the princess, and her wish was also granted. As soon as we arrived at the palace of the King of the Whiting, the fairy presented us to him and ordered him to have crayfish soup made for his dinner every day. We were then thrown into the reservoir. My first care was to seek the queen in order to soothe a little the grief of the princess, but either by the decree of fate or stupidity on my part, I found it impossible to discover her. We passed our days in this mournful search, and our pleasantest moments were those in which we recalled the circumstances of our unhappy lives. You arrived at length, and they presented us to you, but the fairy had forbidden us to make ourselves known before you should interrogate us, and we dared not infringe this rule. So continually were we compelled to submit to severities for trifles. The princess told me she thought she would have died of at observing you in conversation with the cruel marmot." We saw you searching amongst our companions with a mortal impatience, it being obvious that, by the direction you took, you had little chance of arriving at us. We knew that we must be pounded, but we had also learnt that immediately after we should be restored to our former condition, and that the wicked Marmot would have no further power over us. On the eve of the day on which you were to commence the infliction of this torture on us, we were all assembled in a cavity of the reservoir, weeping over our destiny, when Lumineuse appeared, do not weep, my children, said the admirable fairy. I come to inform you that you will escape the punishment they threaten you with, provided you go gaily to the mortar and do not answer any questions that may be addressed to you. I can say no more at present. I am in haste, but do as I have told you, and you will not repent it. Let her whose fate appears the most cruel not lose hope. She will soon find relief." We all thanked the fairy, and appeared before you perfectly resolved to keep our secret. You spoke to some who only made vague replies, and when you had chosen ten, we returned to the reservoir, where the assurance of our speedy deliverance inspired us with a natural gaiety which assisted the project of our protectress. The last words Luminous has spoken gave to the beautiful Camion a lightness of heart, which rendered her charming in the eyes of her mother and me for the Queen had at length recognized her, and we three were inseparable. At length your choice fell on the Queen and me, and we had not time to say adieu to the Princess. An unknown power acted on us at the moment, and inspired us with such gaiety that we thought we should die of laughter at the absurd things we said to each other. You carried us to the kitchen, and we had not touched the bottom of the fatal mortar before Luminous herself came to our assistance and restoring me to my natural form, transported me to my customary abode. I had the consolation of seeing the queen and our companions also resume theirs, but I know not what became of them. The fairy embraced me, and told me to await you, and relate to you everything when you should come to seek the princess. I awaited this moment with impatience, as you will well believe, my lord, said Citronette to the prince, who listened most eagerly to her. AND YESTERDAY I SEATED MYSELF AT THE MOUTH OF THE WELL WHEN Lumineuse APPEARED. OUR CHILDREN ARE ABOUT TO BE MADE HAPPY, MY DEAR CITRONETTE, SAID SHE TO ME. Zurfil HAS ONLY TO RECOVER THE TOOTHPICK CASE OF MARMOTTE TO FINISH HIS LABORS, FOR AT LENGTH HE HAS SKINNED THE PRINCESS. AH, GREAT QUEEN, CRIED I, ARE WE SO HAPPY AS TO BE CERTAIN OF THIS? YES, REPLIED SHE, IT IS QUITE TRUE. He thought that he only skinned Marmotte, but it was in reality the princess. Marmotte was concealed in the handle of the knife he used for that act, and the instant he had finished his task she caused the princess to vanish and appeared in her place for the purpose of again intimidating him. "'What?' cried the prince. "'Was it to my charming bride that I did that harm?' Have I had the barbarity to inflict on her such a cruel torment? Ah, oh, heavens! She will never pardon me, and I do not deserve she should. The unhappy Zirphil spoke so impetuously and distressed himself so greatly that poor Citronette was sorry she had told him this news. How? said she at last, seeing that he was quite overcome by his reflections. How did you not know it? No, I did not know that, said he. What determined me to take the shell off that unhappy and too charming crayfish was that I saw lumineuse in my ring speaking to a veiled person who even laughed with her, and who, I flattered myself, was my princess, and I thought that she had passed through the mortar like the rest. Ah! Oh, I shall never forgive myself for this mistake. But, my lord, said Citronette, the charm depended on your skinning or bounding her, and you had done neither one nor the other. Besides, the person to whom Lumino spoke was the mother of the princess. They awaited the end of your adventure in order to seize on your bride and protect her for you. It was quite necessary that it should so happen. Nevertheless, said the prince, if I had known it, I would rather have pierced my own heart with that horrid knife. But consider, said Citronette, that in piercing your heart, you would have left the princess forever in the power of your enemy and frightful rival, and that it is far better to have shelled her than to have died and left her in misery. Apparently this argument, so obviously founded on truth, appeased the grief of the prince, and he consented to take a little nourishment for his support. They had just finished when the roof of the saloon opened and Lumineuse appeared, seated upon a carbuncle drawn by a hundred butterflies. She descended from it, assisted by the prince, who bathed the hem of her garment with a torrent of tears. The fairy raised him and said, Prince Zerfel, today you are about to reap the fruit of your heroic labors. Console yourself and enjoy at length your happiness. I have vanquished the fury of Marmot by my prayers, and your courage has disarmed her. Come with me to receive your princess from her hands and mine. Ah, madame, cried the prince, throwing himself at her feet. Am I not dreaming? Is it possible that my happiness is real? Do not doubt it, said the fairy. Come to your kingdom and console your queen, your mother, for your absence and for the death of the king, your father. Your subjects wait to crown you. The prince, in the midst of his joy, felt a pang at the tidings of the death of his father. But the fairy, to divert him from his affliction, made him place himself by her side, permitted Citronette to seat herself at their feet, and then the butterflies spread their brilliant wings and set out for the empire of King Zerfel. On the road, the fairy told him to open his ring, and he there found the toothpick case, which he had to return to Marmot. The king thanked the generous fairy a thousand times over, and they arrived at the capital of his dominions, where they were expected with the utmost impatience. Zirphil's mother advanced to receive the fairy as she descended from her car, and all the people, becoming aware of the return of Zirphil, uttered acclamations which diverted him a little from his grief. He tenderly embraced his mother, and all ascended to a magnificent apartment which the queen had prepared for the fairy. They had hardly entered when Marmot arrived in a car lined with Spanish leather and drawn by eight winged rats. She brought with her the beautiful camion, with the king and queen her father and mother. Luminous and the queen hastened to embrace Marmot. Zurfil respectfully kissed her paw, which she extended to him laughing, and he returned her the toothpick case. She then permitted him to claim his bride, and presented her to the queen, who embraced her with a thousand expressions of joy. This numerous and illustrious assemblage began speaking altogether. Joy reigned supreme amongst them. Camion and her charming husband were the only persons who did not speak a word. They had so much to say. There was an eloquence in their silence which affected everyone present. The good Citronette wept with joy whilst kissing the hands of the divine princess. At length Luminous took them both by the hand, and advancing with them towards the queen, mother of Zerphil. Behold, madame, said she, two young lovers who only wait your consent to be happy. Complete their felicity, my sister Marmot, the king and queen here present, and I myself all request you to do so. The queen replied as she ought to this courteous speech, and tenderly embracing the happy pair said, Yes, my children, live happily together, and permit me in relinquishing my crown to you, to participate in that happiness. Zerphil and the princess threw themselves at her feet, from whence she raised them, and again embracing them, they conjured her not to abandon them, but to aid them by her counsels. Marmotte then touched the beautiful camion with her wand, and her clothes, which were already sufficiently magnificent, became silver brocade embroidered with carat diamonds and her beautiful locks fell down and rearranged themselves so exquisitely that the kings and queens declared her appearance was perfectly dazzling. The toothpick case, which the fairy held, was changed into a crown, formed entirely of brilliance, so beautiful and so well set that the room and the whole palace became illuminated by it. Marmot placed it on the head of the princess. Zirphil, in his turn, appeared in a suit similar to that of camion and from the ring which she had given him came forth a crown exactly like hers they were married on the spot and proclaimed king and queen of that fine country the fairies gave the royal wedding breakfast at which nothing was wanting after having spent a week with them and having overwhelmed them with good things they departed and reconducted the king and queen father and mother of camion into their kingdom, the old inhabitants of which they had punished, and repeopled it by a new race faithful to their master. As for Citronette, the fairies permitted her to come and pass some time with her beautiful queen, and consented to allow Camion, by only wishing for her, to see her whenever she pleased. The fairies at length departed, and never were people so happy as King Zerful and Queen Camion. They found their greatest felicity in each other, and days seemed to them like moments. They had children who completed their happiness. They lived to an extreme old age, loving with the same intensity, and striving which should most please the other. On their decease their kingdom was divided, and after various changes it has become, under the dominion of one of their descendants, the flourishing empire of the great Mogul. End of Section 32 Recording by Jeanette Edwards.